Welcome to the Imagine Place podcast. I'm your host, Doug Shapiro, and I'm searching for voices that can help inspire a more creative and courageous youth. If you don't know who Debbie Millman is and you're listening to this podcast, there's a pretty good chance you've heard her voice before. Design Matters, hosted by Debbie Millman, is one of the world's very first podcasts. In 2005, Debbie started Design Matters as a radio show, and ever since that day, she's been exploring how creative geniuses design the arcs of their lives. Her interview skills, her curiosity, her love of design, it all comes together to make her show, which is now an archive of over 300 interviews, a treasure trove of inspiration. That's why it gives me goosebumps to say that today, we get to explore the arc of Debbie's life. Yes, I feel like you've been in and out of my life for the past six or seven years. <laughs> oh, thank you. I see my book in your background. Thank you. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Buying that book was interesting and, and going through it, I kind of feel like I own a piece of design history. And I don't know. If... <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you probably get that comment a lot that you've been in and out of my life. <laughs> oh, well, people that listen to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I am. Uh, I'm fascinated by your body of work, uh, by your personal story. I'm amazed at what you've overcome. I thought about you putting this book together, and I was thinking, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't get to live outside your body. I mean, I, I get to live outside of it and witness you and take this all in. But when you write a book, I can only assume there must have been so much self reflection. I'm curious what you might have learned about yourself through that process. <laughs> this is going to be a surprise answer, I think. Um, what I learned about myself was how much I still really didn't enjoy having to do what the client says. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, funny. Yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that. Um, though it was my book and technically... I was supposed to be making a lot of the decisions about the creative and how it looked and how it, the, the narrative arc and so on and so forth. Um, Harper Collins was super involved in every detail, much more than I'd anticipated. My pre six previous books, I had a lot more freedom and I stopped working in the corporate world after 30 plus years primarily to begin to only do work where if I was working with a client, it was just kind of what I said at this point, I'm 60 years old, you know, been there, done that. And I'm really at the point where I, I finally do understand Massimo Vignelli's desire in his career to give an, an only one option. <laughs> because <laughs> You go to a doctor, you want a diagnosis. You don't want three diagnoses. You want one. You go to a designer, you go to a brand consultant, you 
should get what they recommend. And, and, and for most of my career, I thought, oh my God, how bold, how ballsy, how arrogant in the best possible way. I adored Massimo and never imagined I could ever feel that way. And now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and so funny. it was, it was hard because the first designer that I was working with, Paul Serre, he and I had talked at length about the kind of cover that we wanted. And he did one that I loved, that he loved, but then HarperCollins didn't love. And so that took us down a path of no return in many ways because Paul ended up quitting and <laughs> had to get another designer. And even Chip Kidd, my dear friend, designed two covers for me overnight that they didn't like. So it was a rather arduous uh, experience. And, and I learned how much I love making all the decisions in my, my work. <laughs> that is an interesting thing to learn about yourself. And you're right. That did surprise me. <laughs> it's kind of funny what, uh, what some time away, I guess, creates. Yeah. You know, you mentioned this, uh, you know, you being an executive and, you know, you rose to the very top there. I mean, you've, designed for, you know, the, the top 200 brands that you can yeah. imagine. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering because you, you succeeded at such a high level there and now you've changed into the podcasting world and you're an author, you're a speaker, do the same skills that made you great there make you great at what you're doing now? Well, that would presuppose that I agreed with you that I'm great at what I'm doing now which I really appreciate you saying, but for me, it's a constant effort to rise to my own expectations of what is possible and, and continue to do work that I find challenging and exciting and, and good. I would say that the same skills that drove me in my corporate career are, are still driving me in my more, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, artistic career. Mm. And I don't know that I would say their skills so much as just attributes um, or, or personality traits, which really, to be brutally honest, comes from a real need to prove myself to myself that I feel that the more that I can prove that I'm capable of, the more I deserve to be alive or that I'm a worthy person or that I have some value. And, mm. and that, you know, isn't necessarily the happiest answer, but it's the most truthful. Yeah. And I guess that you're almost, I mean, I'm understanding these skills to be more than career skills. These are survival skills. Yeah, I think they're survival skills. As I said, I don't know that I would say that working as hard as I do to fill a deep hole of longing in my soul is an, is a skill. I think it's more of a coping mechanism, to be honest. And that's something that's been a lifelong process. It's definitely better than it was, say, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But it's still a path that I'm on and hope to be able to finish before I, I pass. <laughs> Here well, lies Debbie Millman. She still didn't feel worthy. Damn it. Yeah. The, and by the way, me telling you, uh, you're great at what you did, did not come from me. That came from, uh, Roxanne in her forward. 
So oh, I'm just I'm just taking the words yeah, out of her mouth. I, I just what I say to her all the time is love goggles. She is wearing the biggest love goggles. The other day I said to her, it's like you're one of those like older um, pilots from the 1920s with the giant glasses on and, and they're just love goggles. And that's how she sees everything I do. So I don't think that she counts. <laughs> she doesn't count. That's funny. Uh, and I guess ne- neither do the rest of us. Only your own view. Exactly. Wouldn't it be nice if we just believed everybody and what they say, all the nice things they said to us (laughs) all the time? I would just be walking on cloud nine with my wife around, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You know, I know that these feelings and what you've overcame are are rooted in your past. It's it's amazing what you've achieved. You, You didn't achieve what you have because of the past. You've achieved despite your past. And that to me, I think is, is, was fascinating to learn about as I kind of understood your life. And, you know, for those that don't know, you haven't had it easy growing up. And I know that plays a role in, yeah, in all of it, this. It, it has played a role for a long time. I think much less so now that I'm not so secretive about it and so ashamed of it. Um, I think that those early neural pathways carve a deep, deep path in in your brain. And it takes a long time to sort of smooth them over. I do think that I'm much more capable now of integrating them into sort of daily life. They're not a constant, there's not a constant struggle. I think it's more just a sort of underlying worthiness issue that I still grapple with. But Again, much, 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 much better than it, than it was. And for anybody yeah. that's listening that isn't fully aware, and I, I sense that Doug might be a little bit tentative about asking, I suffered quite a lot of physical, emotional, and sexual abuses. I was growing up for many, many years. And this was the 70s, and it was not nearly as widely known that, that this was happening to, to people, young people. And at the time I thought I was the only person in the world that was happening to, because it was so foreign to me. The whole idea of what was happening just didn't make any sense to me. I'd never heard about it before. And I really did think I was the only person in the world that it was happening to. And my stepfather told me if I told anybody, he would kill my brother and my mother. He had been a butcher and a, and formerly a, a fighter, a boxer in Germany where he was born between all of his knives as a butcher and all of his ability to fight that I witnessed and and saw, I really believed him. And so for many, many years, I I didn't tell anybody and just sort of disassociated for those years in in many ways. Yeah. And then that's, that's, um, you know, so it's diff, it was difficult for me to learn that, you know, the first time, but what, you know, what you, have achieved it in terms of your your skills that you were so fortunate to be born with and <laughs> you know to carry forward uh, has become the ultimate survival skill and it's amazing how you put those to work and building thank what you Doug. thank you i really appreciate that i mean i know from other practitioners other psychological practitioners that i've spoken to that certain traumas give people a, a, a hyper awareness of others in that Mm. as you're growing up and if you're in the midst of a lot of traumatic experiences, you become hyper aware in an effort to protect yourself or 
to be able to assess any situation, to understand your level of danger. And I think that is one thing that I did get from that, which was a hyper-awareness of how people are feeling or what they're experiencing. And that's definitely something that I, I use in my life now all the time, sometimes to my mm. detriment, but mostly not. <laughs> um, I have a very good read on situations, um, a very, very strong pattern recognition. So certain things I was able to take from those. And then, of course, the most sort of fulfilling aspect of, of that experience now is working to eradicate sexual violence. And the work I do with the Joyful Heart Foundation, the work I do with Mariska Hargitay, that has really become a lot of the ways in which I think I've been able to take a terrible experience and try to transform it into using that traumatic, um, or using that trauma really to begin to rethink how I think about these things and what I can do to help others. And that's certainly been something that has helped a great deal, an absolute great deal. So I kind of want to get into this evolution of yourself. So you've evolved how you've kind of understood how to channel that past. I don't know that I would use the word channel. I think it would just integrate. And maybe that's similar, but I just, it's a word that's really important to me. It's not about um, pushing something away. It's about integrating something in. And and so that's, that's an important delineation. Yeah. I can understand that. Absolutely. And I guess the the question then is is kind of coming back to your work, your podcast, has that has that why changed? Has that integration of what your work in design matters is doing to you for you personally, has that changed over time? Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't know that I wouldn't say that necessarily it's only personally. Um, but yes, absolutely. When I started the show in 2005, it was a real Hail Mary to my creativity. I was doing, I wanted to do something that was sort of purely creative, that didn't have any commercial value, that didn't have any financial implications, that didn't have any fears or concerns about shelf presence and a return on an investment and marketplace share, all of those things that I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis in every project that I was doing. And so that's why I didn't have a logo for a really long time. And that's why I didn't even think about monetizing it for a very long time. And initially it was really just designers talking about design, what I call now very inside baseball. It was me and my friends chatting about their work. (laughs) And that, that was pretty much the way it was for the first hundred or so episodes when I was on Voice America. And then when I moved over to Design Observer, uh, the late, great Bill Durantel invited me to bring the show over to Design Observer, but with a proviso that I really worked to improve the sound quality. And so at that point, I he introduced me to Curtis Fox, my current producer. We've been working together ever since, but he's really serious about what he does. He's He's a producer and he essentially directs the show and is always super concerned about the sound quality and really helped me transform the quality of the show. And then suddenly, because he was being paid and I was taking this much more seriously, that's when I stopped doing my monologues because I wanted to put more attention into my guests rather than my own sort of narcissistic musings. And ultimately, over the years, 
started to evolve the show quite organically from just designers to really anybody that's making anything creative. And, mm. and now I would say it's anybody that's making anything out of nothing. You know, what is that magical process? And because of my own background, I'm particularly endlessly fascinated by how people become who they are. How do they evolve into these creative people? How do they create greatness? How do they overcome their obstacles? How do they overcome their struggles? I'm not really all that interested in deconstructing their success Mm. Because that you can find on Instagram, you know, <laughs> I'm much more interested in deconstructing the, the journey that they took to getting where they are. Well, that, that absolutely comes through in your work. Thank you. And there's, um, you said, you said a Hail Mary earlier yeah. and that stuck with me because there, it was a cold call, right? I mean, you yeah. had, a, <laughs> you had a, a, a random cold call of, of a gentleman asking you to host a show. Right that you decided to take action on. Do you even know, I mean, do you know this person's name? Does, yes, does this his person name even is, know? His name what... was Brian. Yes, I think he does. And and there was a marketing person who I worked with at Voice America as well, Denise Dion, who was wonderful to me. And and yes, I'm still in touch with her as well. So yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what that started. I mean, that was a very, very clear kind of fork in the road. Yes. Do you, do you ever wonder what you'd be doing if you didn't answer that call or if that call didn't come? Well, I actually have to say that there are two calls like that in my life. And the first one was a cold call that I got when I was working at Frankfurt Balkind in the early 90s. And I was really unhappy there and got a cold call from a headhunter who offered me an opportunity to interview at the Schechter Group, which was the first branding agency that I I worked at. I mean, certainly Frankfurt Balkheim did branding, but they considered themselves a design firm. And back then there was a real distinction between branding and design. And I was so unhappy at that job that I went on the interview and ended up getting it and ended up moving into branding. So that was also another one of these random Wow. serendipitous experiences i i just took because it was an opportunity to consider again another hail mary at that point i had worked i had for the first 10 years of my career I was working in design and then moved when i got to the opportunity at frankfurt Balkind. i desperately wanted to work there they were doing some of the best creative in the world at the time and as a result only hired the best in class designers. And so they did not want my design talent at that time at all and offered me an opportunity as a project manager. And I was so desperate to understand how they made the work that they did and to be surrounded by the best in class designers that worked there that I ended up taking that job. And I was mm. a really terrible project manager, really terrible. Um, and so that did not work out well. And That's so great. a year or so later, I think it was about a year, I, I lasted there a year. I got this call from a headhunter about interviewing at the Schechter Group. The Schechter Group, while I was there, morphed into Interbrand. And then from there, I got my job at Sterling. And, and it was only because of how successful I was in that first two years in branding that I got the job at Sterling. And then... My career took off from there. That that is wild, and I 
you know, how you have this fascination for, um, you know, kind of understanding uh, people and the connection between who they are and what they do. I'm really fascinated by these forks in the road. Mm. I've always found myself fascinated by them because in the moment, you never know. Right. So there could there could have been one a week ago. There could Absolutely. have been. You just Isn't it incredible? Know. I know. It and is. that's sort of the metaverse, right? You know, there's a Debbie variant and a Doug variant out there. I don't know if you watch Loki, <laughs> but I love yeah, yeah. I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I'm always imagining what the possibilities are. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know, on a, on another planet somewhere, I could still be at Franco Balkheim working as a designer. No, not really, because <laughs> they don't exist anymore. But <laughs> but you know, I do want to say that in that transition from Franco Balkheim to the Schechter Group. And then Interbrand, I wasn't hired as a designer or a project manager. At that point, I was hired as a salesperson. So for me, that was sort of the lowest rung on the ladder of working in the design business. I was not a good enough designer to work at Frank Robalkind. I blew it as a project manager. And now I was going to be working sort of dialing for dollars to try to drum up business for the Schechter Group. And... I guess because of my desperation at the time to be at least not a failure at this this job, I I worked really, really hard and ended up doing really, really well. And I don't know if it's because of my fascination with brands that I'd held from being a, a young kid working in my dad's pharmacy, which I did for years and years and years. And so was always interacting with consumers in quotes, really my dad's customers, helping mm. them decide which they what thing they wanted. I remember making signs for my dad's um, displays in his pharmacy. So from a very early age, I was captivated by brands and then suddenly found myself working with brands. And that's really when whatever talent I had began to shine through. You've got these different careers and talents. I mean, it's kind of neat the way you've stacked these things on top of each other. You're an author, artist, speaker, host, you're a brand, a designer. And uh, what's neat is that you're all of these things. And I was thinking about that and I was, what I liked is how you've, you've layered them and you haven't let go of one to start another. And I kind of think we forget that a little bit, you know, we're all diverse and a lot of the things maybe that we do don't have titles, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, but I think we forget that about ourselves. And I, I wonder if that was like a strategy you have, um, like you imagined kind of not letting go of, of, of one thing to fully go into another. It's a really interesting question. I've talked about the sort of letting go aspect based on a, a conversation that I had with Many, many years ago, I would say this is probably going on 10 years ago at this point, I was talking to the former CMO of Puma, who had recently, no, she was a general manager, and she had left and started a retail business of her own. And I asked her, this was before I left Sterling, and I asked her how she got the courage to do that, to make that transformative leap. She said that she just had to let go of the trapeze wow, and have faith that she was going to land in the right direction. In that moment, I had this visual of me sort of having not just, not just holding on to the, to the trapeze, but having my elbows and my knees sort of all holding on to this 
this this bar keeping me in the air. And ultimately, I don't know that I let go of of really anything except my corporate responsibilities to a, a, a company in a large um, publicly traded advertising network <laughs> because I'm still doing a lot of the things that I'm doing. I'm just not managing hundred people and having to think about a $50 million payroll. So, you know, those, those things were front and center of my day-to-day life. In addition to trying to be creative, in addition to trying to get great business for Sterling, in addition to trying to do my podcast, in addition to trying to run a graduate program and it was a very hard decision to give up that sort of power base. Um, and it took me a long time to get the courage up to do it. Um, I would say that it wasn't necessarily letting go of the trapeze, but it was going in a different direction on the trapeze. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about these modes that you have, writing, hosting, leading, speaking, designing, making, what mode are you most at home at? Well, I think the common denominator for almost everything I do now is making. Mm. I love to make things. I love to make things from nothing. So whether it be a lesson plan or a podcast or a book or an illustration, hand lettering, whatever it is, I just enjoy the process of making. And, and creating. That's when I'm happiest. Really, that's when I'm happiest. Yeah, I can. And, and is it, well, you said it, the process, you enjoy the process. So it's not really the outcome that Mm-mm. you're enjoying. Mm-mm. You no. just enjoy that process. I mean, I love having something that I'm proud of out in the world. But I think that almost everything that I've made that I'm proud of at the time, I look back on several years later and go like, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) How can I put that out in the world looking like that or reading like that or whatever? Um, There are a few things I'm proud of, but not a lot. (laughs) You know, I I think you're touching on something there. You you have to be all about the process because I I was talking with a friend recently and he was saying, you know, I, I stopped painting 20 years ago because I hate it all. I, I wasn't good. I, it took me 20 years, but I finally realized that it's the process of painting that I should really focus on because it's, it's helpful to me. You know, it makes me feel good. And he totally let go of the result. And he said, why am I trying to be perfect at this? You know, and why am I trying to focus on um, showing something that I'm really proud of when I could just be really enjoying myself right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that, especially when you start and stop something, it takes a while to ramp back up. It's sort of like exercise. Not that I'm a big exerciser, but I know that the more you do, the better you get at any kind of athletic endeavor, generally speaking, Mm. if you're committed to it. And so for me, when I stop doing something, if I stop drawing for a while, I have to go through this terrible purgatory, or maybe it's actually hell, of of fighting with whatever I'm making because it looks too tortured. And I can always, I can tell when I'm approaching something through a torture lens (laughs) or through a lens of ease. And I only get to that lens of ease through continual practice. 
and regular doing. Otherwise, it's just torture. And then I get really down and depressed and I sort of push it away. And that only makes it worse for when I try again. I have to keep going through that experience to get to the other end, which is, and it's not really an end. It's really the beginning of actually good work, of making some good work. It takes a while for me to get through that torture phase to, to the good phase. I can relate to that, and that actually goes with so many things, whether it's even like something super big like parenting, you yeah. know, it's the same, same way. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of obviously a skill that you've mastered, which is interviewing, and I, I actually had some questions about that, just sure. some fun questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think this is a good, a good place to say that I continually interview. It's one thing that is really consistent in my life. And I think if you go back to 2005 through even 2010, 11, I was not that good. <laughs> and I think I've gotten better, but this is a very public evolution that anyone that's interested in podcasting and interested in seeing someone's journey can witness for themselves. I was not anywhere near even decent back then. so. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, it's a, you you got to kind of learn in front of everybody, mm -hmm. like learn in front of an audience, which is mm -hmm. kind of cool. You know, I I can relate to that. I I find it difficult to listen to my very early episodes um uh, just because for the same reason I can hear myself maybe not listening or not as engaged as I maybe am now. But even me, I'm only 2 years in and uh, I've got a lot of growing to do. But I, I am just my own curiosity about it, just because I have my own. But do you have rituals or or uh, superstitions prior to an interview? Uh, no, I don't. I don't have. Well, I don't have superstitions. I do have rituals in that I do so much research ahead of time, and maybe that is a bit of a superstition that if I don't do enough, I'm going to be caught out. But it is the one thing. I do find a great deal of ease in engaging. That process puts me in a zone where time ceases to exist. And I love doing the research so much that I can get really lost in it. And I think that the process of crafting the interview is one that I, I truly enjoy. And so that becomes a, a process that I repeat over and over and over again, because there is a, a methodology to the way I do it now. Yeah. It's almost like the whole thing is a ritual. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, there, I mean, I don't want to say that there's a formula to a design matters interview, but there certainly is a structure that I like to follow. Here's my hack. Here's here's what I do. Oh, good. Um, yeah. I'll share I was you just what I about do. to say. How do you do it? So I the the most impactful way that I uh, prepare for an interview is I close my eyes and I just imagine doing the interview. And um and as I imagine it, I'll write down notes, you know, of like, oh, like I could see them saying this or I could see myself asking this. And then I imagine it so much that when I finally get into the interview, 
I don't feel so unfamiliar, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I, I feel like we've already had this conversation <laughs> in a way. And uh, and it just helps me because a lot of times I'm meeting people for the first time, you know. Sure. And uh, and you you might have more familiarity with most of your guests at by this point. Um, uh, but I, well, only, I do feel only on paper, you know, I, it's not like I'm palling around with David Byrne, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Me and this David, is true. You know, we're hanging out. No, not happening. <laughs> Most of yeah. the time we're meeting people for the first time. All right. Here's a, here's a funny question. I was, uh, I was having a conversation with a colleague that, uh, that I think would be a fantastic guest for your show. She's not a colleague actually, but she's the CEO of the interior design uh, International Interior Design Association. Her name is Cheryl Durst. Um, fascinating leader. She had actually met you at one point um, that she mentioned, but uh, she's been in that role for 20 years. Wow. She's a major follower of yours. And she and I were talking and we we're like, all right, Taylor Swift has her Swifties. What do uh, Debbie Millman fans call themselves? Oh, I have no idea. And I'm terrified to even consider that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I love that you're equating me with Taylor Swift. You are a love bug. Um, thank you for doing that, but not even in the same metaverse. <laughs> I guess I have one last question. Is there something about why design matters that you want people to know that they wouldn't discover in the book? That's a wonderful question. I think that generally speaking, people don't consider that every single thing that isn't made from nature, that isn't created in nature, we make. Humans have made. And that means that every single thing that hasn't been created or constructed by nature is designed. And so everything in many ways is is designed. And I feel like design is intention, conscious intention. It has a power that very few other disciplines really have. And I think that that's a really remarkable thing. I agree. That is a, an awesome way uh, to close this out. And I, I am really honored and, and so thankful that you spent this time with me. Thank you, Debbie. Doug, you are just completely wonderful. And it's been an absolute honor to talk with you. I've loved having this conversation with you. If you'd like to join the conversation, go to speakpipe forward slash Doug Shapiro, where you can leave me a question or a comment for a future episode. And if you enjoyed the episode today, we'd love a rating or review. It's one of the best ways you can help others find this podcast. For more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash Imagine a Place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. Thanks for listening.